Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 through 36. We conclude our study in this chapter, in our studies in Genesis, beginning at verse 12. We read the first 11 chapters and studied them last Sunday and realized how the sons of Jacob Israel, who will be the heads of the 12 tribes, have grown to resent and hate their brother Joseph because of the fact that God in his sovereign choice has elected him over them in terms of being the head of the household. Beginning at verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And so he said, Here I am. And then he said, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flock and bring word back to me. And so he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, And he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him there. He was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? By the way, the the man here is no no other than just a stranger, somebody passing by. I've not found any central significance to this character, this nameless man who found him. He said, What are you seeking? And so Joseph said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Remember now, at this point, they hate him. Hate him to this point. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. And let me stop right there and just point out that in the literal Hebrew text, and I think in the Greek Septuagint version, but definitely in the Hebrew, It literally reads, the master of dreams is coming. And it's curious, for just for those of you who might want to know this point, the Hebrew word here for master is Baal, the same word we get to describe the pagan god Baal, as he's sometimes called. The master, look, we should, who, this, we come to this master of dreams, this dreamer of dreams, he's coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him, verse 20, and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Now the implication seems to be here that Reuben was motivated by as much winning his father's favor as he was perhaps saving Joseph's life. So it came to pass, in verse 23, it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Notice that, what they're doing while they've cast, after they've cast him in this pit. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing spices, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders, which is another name for Ishmaelites, are the same people, then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers, 
and said, the lad is no more, and where shall I go? In other words, what will become of me? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it. It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his weight, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in my mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and captain of the guard. And there ends the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word. And so, the master of dreams. Joni Yoder is uh, one of the writers, or at least she used to be, of the uh, Our Daily Bread devotional series, which maybe a few of you know about. It's sort of like the one that we get here called Today. Uh, this was produced by, I think, the Radio Bible Class. And in one of her stories, she tells about her very first time, many years ago, taking her car through what was then a novelty, an automated car wash. And she said that she felt as though she was going to the dentist, you know, full of apprehension. She nervously pulled her car up to the machine and slipped the coins into the slot and then slowly eased the car up to the spot until the red light came on and the buzzer sound to stop. And all of a sudden, powers beyond her control began to move the car forward as if it were on a conveyor belt. And all at once, a great flush of water splashed off her windows and shampoo and brushes began hitting the car from all directions. Mrs. Yoder said that she started to get nervous at that point. She began to worry about what she might do if she got stuck in the car wash or what would happen if the car began to flood. I'm sure many of us have done the same thing. I know I have. But then the water stopped, and after a nice uh, blow-dry, her car was thrust outside, all clean and polished. You know, friends, with the stormy times of life, sometimes it seems that things happen to us that are far out of our control, and maybe we feel, too, like we are on a conveyor belt. Then, by God's grace, we can look back from the other side of the problems, and see that through it all, the Lord was faithful and good to us. Now, the passage that we've read today gives us an account of one of the many difficult experiences in the life of this man, Joseph. And there are several things that I want to call to your attention. Here is the first one. I want to focus your attention, especially on verse 28, where it talks about his brothers selling him to the Midianite traders, and they lifted him out of the pit, handed him over, took the money, and that was that. And Joseph is off to Egypt. Joseph's brothers resent him so much that several of them, as we heard, wanted to kill him. And we've also learned that this resentment is ultimately, though, against God, because God is the one who has chosen Joseph over them. Now, that ought to sound familiar to us on some level, because isn't that the story of Cain and Abel? Remember how Cain hated Abel because God approved of him and his offering, but he didn't approve of Cain's offering? And remember how Cain reacted. He murdered Abel, his own brother. Well, these brothers intend to murder their brother Joseph, but they end up doing something else. Well, be that as it may, the intentions of their hearts accuse them just as seriously as if, in fact, they'd killed Joseph. 
1 John 3.15 tells us that anyone who even hates his brother is a murderer or hates a fellow Christian. Several of Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him outright and dump his body into a pit. This, this is probably a hole. We know it is. It, it was empty. It's a cistern that was used to hold water. And the idea may have been, initially at least, to throw him down there to have him drowned. But since it was dried up, they just let him sit there and thirst to death. But Reuben, apparently, is very concerned about what may happen to them, if not himself, if they become guilty of shedding their brother's blood. And so he makes that suggestion about throwing Joseph into the pit without killing him beforehand. And so let's learn this from that. We will inevitably have to deal with the pitfalls in life. Here are ten strong men attacking a smaller man. And this is the culmination of their unchecked hatred and envy of him. And if the deed itself was not bad enough, and I tried to make a point of this and I read it, notice they sit back and they eat a meal together. Can you imagine that? Could you sit down to eat your supper knowing that some member of your family was at the bottom of a well crying out for help? See, that is the ugly reality of hatred and envy, my friends. That is what any of us are capable of if we allow hatred and resentment to dominate our lives. I don't think there's an adult in this worship service today who has not had to deal with adversity, sorrow, pain, loss of friends or family, financial problems, marital difficulties, and on it goes. All of those things lie before us like the gaping mouth of a bottomless pit. But you know, there are even more pitfalls we can expect in life beyond that. Temptation to sin. We too often are given over to greed and pride. We fall into depression and anger. All of those things can ensnare us like Joseph's brothers did to him. Now, if you're like most people, you only have to fall into a pit once, at the most twice, before you realize what you need to do to keep from falling into it again. But if you neglect the ways of God then you are going to keep right on falling into the pits that you could, with the Lord's help, otherwise avoid. Let me just give you but one example. Let's take the example of worry or anxiety. Do you ever get so worried and that it gets the better of you? I'm not talking about just a passing worry, you know, will I make that green light before it turns red, something like that. No, I'm talking when things, things are really bad. I mean, you're in a deep down pit of anxiety. You get so worried about the future, about your job, about your marriage, your salvation, whatever, to the point where almost every waking moment becomes dominated by worry and fear. Do you know what the Word of God tells you that you should not do? You should not fall into a pit like that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, we heard this earlier in our New Testament reading. Jesus said that you should not worry about the material things of life because God, because God is the provider of all things for us. And in Mark chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus even told the apostles not to worry when they were arrested and persecuted for his sake. And in Philippians 4, 6, the apostle Paul says that we should not be anxious or worried about anything. In other words, our lives should not become paralyzed with anxiety about the circumstances that may seem so threatening to us. Now, let me suggest something that may help us to get out of the pitfall of worry if we ever find ourselves in it. And I'm not, I, I'm not making any apology for this. I, I'm not saying 
The Bible is a book of, of self-help pep talk stuff. But look, if we believe the Word of God applies to all of life, and we do, then what does the Word of God tell us about worry and how to deal with it? That's what I'm sharing with you. Instead of looking at bad circumstances and telling yourself repeatedly, Oh, I'm worried. What am I going to do? There's no way out of this. No, instead try telling yourself this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If you remind yourself of those things, you will be amazed how soon you will find yourself out of that pit. Instead of telling yourself how bad your life is and how worried you are, try telling the Lord that you love him and that he is your shepherd. Let me hasten to add that doing this may not make your problem go away, but it will put your mind at ease from your worries if you really turn it over to the Lord. But here's a key thing. For that to have any effect, the Lord must really and truly be your shepherd. Because the real motivation to do something like this, instead of living in a pit of worry, is that you do really and truly believe that the Lord is your shepherd, and whatever may befall you, he has your best interest at heart. I don't know if young Joseph tried doing that or not, but one thing I do know, he knew in the deepest recesses of his heart that the Lord loved him. And even though he presently found himself at the bottom of a pit, he would one day get out of it. He knew that. You say, well, how do you know that he knew that? I know it because of the type of man that he was and the type of man he would become and because of something he's going to tell these very brothers many years from this point. But let me move on to another uh, thing. Maybe technically this is the second major thing that the passage says to us today. And it's self-evident the Lord always provides deliverance for his children. The Lord always brings deliverance. Now, those brothers had nothing but their own selfish motives in mind when they decided to sell Joseph into slavery. But what the brothers didn't know was that Yahweh himself was accomplishing his will through their evil and hatred. What about poor Joseph in all of this? I'm sure he must have had his dark moments of doubt. I know I would, wouldn't you? I mean, here he is. He's had those incredible dreams and and his father has given him the coat of many colors. But, but now what happens? He finds himself thrown into the bottom of a pit by the very brothers over whom he is supposed to have authority. What is he going to do? What would you do? What, what would we do, my friends? Joseph was helpless. See, he had to be lifted up out of the pit. His brothers raised him from the depths of the earth. They didn't do that for any reason other than their own selfish ends and desires. But they did it nonetheless. When we find ourselves in the pits of sorrow and despair, when we cry out to Christ for help, he will not cast us off. He will not shortchange us like these wicked brothers. He himself knows. Our Lord knows what it's like to be in the pit. Do you realize... That the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died to save people from the very pits of hell. Here we see Joseph going down into the depths of the earth only to be raised up. And after a time of suffering, he will eventually become the exalted ruler of Egypt. See, this is a forecast, a foreshadowing of what will happen to Jesus, our, G our Christ, when he comes or when he came and he died. He was buried and he rose again. Because Jesus, too, was cast into the pit of death, in other words. And he, too, was raised up. He, too, suffered much pain and betrayal and hardship. And at the end of it all, 
He became the exalted ruler over all creation. He is Lord and King over all. Joseph dreamed that one day his father and his brothers would bow before him. And the word of God tells us that all the kings of the earth will one day bow before the righteous sovereign rule of Christ. I've just put together a series of random passages throughout Scripture that teach us this. Uh, For the kingdom of Yahweh, uh, for the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot hit himself, even he who cannot keep himself alive. Psalm 72, verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Another passage says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue take an oath. And in Philippians 2.10, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. Okay, look, yes, as we look around today, it may appear to our eyes that all the rulers of this world aren't in a really big hurry to bow down to the Lord and submit to his rule and authority. But that day is coming, friends. It is coming as surely as the sun will set this evening at dusk. We may not live to see it. I'm guessing I won't. And maybe even yours and my children and grandchildren will not live to see it. But God has not promised to accomplish his plan in yours or my lifetime. He has, however, promised to accomplish it. In the meantime, he calls us to be faithful. He calls us, even when we are in the pitfalls of life, to submit to him, to bow before him and accept him as the only wise God and Savior. As I think many of us in this room know, and this may be news to some of those who listen to our sermons via audio, sermon audio, here in the Southland, here in the southern United States, there have been throughout our history two major crops grown by farmers, tobacco and especially cotton. Not so much anymore with these, but cotton used to be the king crop of the South. King cotton, it was called. And many a family, many uh, poor, slightly poor farming families supported themselves by growing cotton. I once read a story about some cotton farmers in South Alabama. They lost an entire cotton crop one year, when the boll weevil, the bug, infested the, the cotton and ate up everything in sight. Well, the next planting season, that group of South Alabama farmers mortgaged their homes and they planted another cotton crop. They were hoping and praying for a good harvest in the coming year. But as the cotton started to grow, the boll weevil came back. And once again, the cotton crop was devastated, destroyed, as were most of the farms that were wiped out. The few farmers, though, who did manage to survive those two years of the boll weevil attack, they decided that next year we're going to try something a little different. And so they planted something they had never planted before, peanuts. And in the good providence of God, the peanut crop was so strong and the market demand was so high that most of those farmers who had survived the two years of devastation by the boll weevil They made enough profit to pay off all of their debts. And from that time forward, they became peanut farmers and they continued to make handsome profits for all of their hard work. But let me tell you something those farmers did. They got together and they pooled a certain percentage of their profits. 
And in the town square, they erected a monument. A monument to the boll weevil, of all things. Because you see, if it had not been for the bug, for the boll weevil, they never would have discovered peanuts. Those men learned that even in a disaster, the Lord can bring about great victory and happiness. And so, my friends, if this part of the life of Joseph doesn't teach us anything else, it teaches us that God works through the adversity and pitfalls in life to accomplish his grand design and purpose for you and me. And praise God that he does. Let us pray.